Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Can new technology free us from fossil fuels and save the planet from climate disruption? The Stone Age didn't end because the stones were finished. It ended because we found something better. And in the same way, we need to transition now to modern energy sources. Now, that is going to hurt for people in the oil and gas business and coal unless we manage to transition that revolution effectively. Coming up, preparing for our energy future. Also, the chips are down. The debate over burning forest waste to make energy heats up. The last thing we would want to do is incentivize something as renewable energy that actually makes climate change worse. Biomass. We investigate this burning issue. And... Sounds from ships and sonar force whales to shout. These stories and more, just ahead on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Despite 20 years of UN-led negotiations, global greenhouse gas emissions continue to increase, and a new international climate treaty seems a distant hope. Now the Guardian newspaper in Britain reports that UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon appears to be ending his day-to-day involvement with the climate talks, but he's not going quietly. Ordinarily, the UN Secretary is a soft-spoken, genteel diplomat, but at the recent World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, he was outspoken about climate change, inaction, and the fate of the planet. Climate change is showing us that the old model is more than obsolete. Over time, that model is a recipe for national disaster. It is a global suicide pact. It may sound strange to speak of revolution, but that is what we need at this time. Joining Ban Ki-moon at the Davos summit was Ivo de Boer. Until last year, he was the UN's top climate negotiator. Mr. de Boer, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Strong words from the UN Secretary General, huh? Very strong, but I think he's he's right that it is a fundamental transformation that we need to be looking at. The global economy is, is emerging from an economic crisis, and then we're in a way at a fork in the road. Do we take the brown route and rely heavily on, on coal and other fossil fuels, or do we really make the shift to renewables? The UN Secretary General recently made an announcement that signals a dramatic shift. He's stepping away from the climate negotiations. I don't think he's stepping away from the climate negotiations. I think what he's actually trying to do is to embed the work that's been done in the climate process so far into national sustainable growth and national green growth strategies, so really trying to take climate policy into the heart of sustainable growth policy, which is ultimately where it belongs. But he does say that I'm not going to deal with day-to-day climate negotiations. Well, people have said on his behalf that he's not going to be dealing with day-to-day climate change negotiations, and he wasn't actually doing that in the past. He was very much focusing on getting heads of state and government engaged in the process, making sure that we had the political leadership uh, focused on this topic, and I think that's where he will continue to exert his influence. I certainly hope so. So you don't think he's putting his hopes for an international agreement on climate change on the back burner? 
No, not at all. I think this has been one of his flagship priorities since he came into office uh, around about four, four and a half years ago. Um, this topic is very close to his heart. He recognizes that it's very close to the development agenda. He's now actually trying to give climate change its proper place in that broader sustainable development agenda. Sustainable development, and he also uses the words clean energy. I noticed that in in his State of the Union address, President Obama didn't mention climate change. He talks a lot about clean energy. Well, the president in his State of the Union address, it's true, did not talk about climate change, but he did talk about putting an end to fossil fuel subsidies, to creating green jobs, to stimulating a, a technological revolution in this country. I think that American presidents as far back as Richard Nixon have been talking about ending uh, an addiction to oil, and maybe it's time somebody did something about it. So although President Obama didn't use the words climate change, I think his agenda in terms of innovation, green jobs, renewable energy, and putting an end to subsidies for for coal and, and oil is basically saying the same thing but using different words, hopefully more popular ones. Well, you were in Davos. Uh, You met with some of the world's business leaders, and you have over these many years. Do you have any sense that the people involved in fossil fuel industry are going to step away from, you know, the old or what what Mr. Ban Ki-moon calls the obsolete model? No, they're not going to step away from that. But um, to repeat an often made and not very good joke, uh, the Stone Age didn't end because the stones were finished. It ended because we found something better. And in the same way, we need to transition now to modern energy sources. Now, that is going to hurt for people in the oil and gas business and coal unless we manage to transition that revolution effectively. And that's all about helping coal and oil companies transform themselves into energy companies that branch out into into new areas and into new technologies. Can technology save us? Technology will have to save us at the end of the day. I mean, there is if, if, if we're moving towards a global population of 9 billion people that want a decent lifestyle and we recognize that we can't give them a decent lifestyle if we're going to continue to rely on the technology today, then we either have to fundamentally shift the technologies that that we deploy in a much cleaner direction or basically sentence billions of people to continued poverty. But can we do that without firm emission targets? Because here in the United States, as you know, firm emission targets are dead on arrival. Well, firm emission targets are dead on arrival at the federal level at the moment. At the same time, I see a lot of a lot of states in this country advancing on, on targets and on emissions trading as well. If all of the states that are talking about emission trading at the moment go ahead with those plans, then close to a quarter of the U.S. economy would actually be under a cap-and-trade regime. Do you sound optimistic? Well, I try to be optimistic. I'm frustrated as well. I mean, it was a great disappointment for me to see that you know, a couple of months back, the, the climate and energy legislation did not make it at the federal level, that President Obama is now having to take a different tack. But at the same time, we are in the situation that all 42 industrialized countries have now set themselves targets for the year 2020, that 40 developing countries, including all of the big ones, so including China and India, have set themselves national goals to limit the growth of their emissions. And those countries together account for close to 90% of global CO2 emissions. So in that sense, a train has left the station. Unfortunately, it's moving rather slowly. Can that revolution happen without the United States, or will they leave us at the station? 
Um, the, the United States has a, a centuries-long history of, of being a leader in, in innovation, in, in change, and in dynamism. But China is now a world leader in wind and, and solar technology, and I think that that is for broader economic reasons. So I think, the yes, we could probably do it at the end of the day without the United States, but it would be a great pity to see such a fantastic innovator be left behind. Well, Mr. DeBoer, I want to thank you again. It's always a good to talk with you. Very nice to speak to you again. Thank you. Ivo DeBoer is a global advisor on climate change and sustainability with KPMG. Last April, as the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded and sank in the Gulf of Mexico, the pipeline snapped off at the wellhead, sending 200 million gallons of crude gushing into the water a mile below. BP officials, desperate for ways to mitigate the disaster, tried a daring environmental experiment. They had workers inject three-quarters of a million gallons of chemical dispersants deep into the underwater plume. It had never been tried before. And only now, nine months later, do scientists have an idea of what happened to all that dispersant. Nancy Kinner is co-director of the Coastal Response Research Center at the University of New Hampshire. So what happens to the dispersant is it basically has diluted out as this plume of oil and dispersant has moved away from the wellhead by naturally occurring currents, the dispersant has been diluted and diluted and diluted out as it mixes with the ambient water in the Gulf of Mexico. The whole idea of a dispersant is it's going to take the oil and it's going to help the oil become little droplets of oil that can start moving through the water instead of rising up to the surface because the surface is where you have most of your productivity, the shrimp, etc. Typically, the, the solution to pollution is dilution. And here they've diluted this dispersant over a vast area. Is that okay? We don't know what the impact of this substance, this dispersant material, is going to be at low concentrations, very, very low concentrations, over long periods of time. We don't know that. And so that is something that will, like many things about this spill, will remain to be determined over time. So here we have this dispersant spread out over a vast part of the Gulf of Mexico. Can we clean it up? I don't think we have any ability to clean up this particular surfactant at part per trillion or now that was in September. It's probably a lot more dilute now to clean up at those low concentrations. I think it would be impossible because you're talking about very, very small amounts over vast volumes of water. But it didn't biodegrade. It didn't kind of break down into its component parts? It doesn't appear to have done that based on what they've shown. That's kind of surprising. Well, there are a couple reasons why I don't think it's surprising. First of all, remember that the organisms are going to eat what's easiest to eat. And oil is a much simpler compound to degrade, the compounds in oil, than this surfactant. Okay? It's like mashed potatoes compared to eating bubble gum. Yeah, you go after the, the, the potatoes. Go after the potatoes. You got it. And then the other thing that's important is not only how edible it is, but also what concentration it's present in. And so if you think about this as a plate of mashed potatoes 
where you have three pounds of mashed potatoes and you have one tiny, little, tiny, teeny piece of ground beef, okay? Mm -hmm. Which one are you going to gear up to eat? Well, you're going to gear up to eat the mashed potatoes because there are lots of them. And so if you have to make enzymes to degrade it, you're going to go for that. You're not going to go for that one little tiny thing. And so what we find is that when organisms degrade things, it's not only a function of the degradability of the molecule, it's also a function of how abundant the molecule is. Professor Kenner, if the decision was yours now, you had another oil disaster in in the ocean, would you use dispersants deep below the surface, knowing what we know now? I think it would depend on the situation. So, for example, if this was way out in the middle of the ocean, probably not. Because way out in the middle of the ocean, you're far away from productive coastal waters, that kind of thing. Even if the wind blew for days at a time, it would probably not have the oil reach the land. But if we were talking about a deep water horizon-like situation where the winds were predominantly pushing the oil onshore and where there was a lot of reproduction going on of key species in the coastal waters and in the marshes, I think the only alternative would be to disperse that oil in the subsurface because you have so much risk to populations and ecosystems onshore. Professor Nancy Kinner is co-director of the Coastal Response Research Center at the University of New Hampshire. Professor Kinner, thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Just ahead, testing a sewage system that can endure a Wisconsin winter. It's designed like a Russian doll and shaped like an Eskimo home. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Generating electricity produces about a third of the nation's climate-changing emissions. Much of that comes from aging coal-fired power plants. Now, for the first time ever, the Environmental Protection Agency is taking steps to stem the flow of greenhouse gases from utilities, but not those that come from burning biomass wood chips, forest waste, and other plant material. Biomass is widely considered a renewable energy source, but its green credentials are being called into question. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj reports. Not far from the heart of coal country in Virginia, a power plant is busy churning out the kind of energy that lights up your home. 80 megawatts of electricity enough to meet the needs of about 20,000 households. In the boiler room, giant stoves heat water, producing steam to turn a turbine that creates electricity. It's the same system that converts fossil fuels into power, but what's burned here is wood. Just outside the plant, it smells like cut pine, and truck after truck drives into the yard bearing big loads of little pieces of wood. They're dumped onto a giant pile that's fed into the plant's boilers. That's about seven days of fuel for the plant. John Helton is the station manager for this Dominion biomass power plant near a small town called Hurt. The wood chips, he says, are a byproduct of nearby logging operations. Trees that would otherwise be burnt or thrown out as waste come here. We're buying the wood. They come in and they scale in. It has a barcode system, so it's automatic and then they scale out. This is the 
largest biomass plant in the state and one of the largest in the country. Dominion bought it in 2004 and is building another biomass plant in southern Virginia now. Nahi Kanfer of the Sierra Club says biomass has caught the eye of power companies like Dominion that are watching as new regulations on pollution turn their inefficient coal-fired power plants into liabilities. Coal power is getting more expensive to run, and it's still just as dirty as before. And so a, a company like Dominion or a company like most utilities in this country are going to be looking at their coal fleets and saying, how do we get this coal power offline before it starts really doing damage to our bottom line? So they're looking at biomass as one possible solution to that. With a few fixes, instead of working with dirty coal, a utility can work with trees. Instead of contributing to climate change, it can be part of a clean energy solution, at least on paper. Most regulators treat biomass as a renewable, but some scientists say it shouldn't be. After all, carbon dioxide makes up about half of most trees, and burning them releases it. Growing trees back to be big enough to suck up substantial amounts of carbon takes decades, and that's if they're replanted at all. Mary Booth, a carbon cycling scientist with the Massachusetts Environmental Energy Alliance, says in practice, biomass can be worse than coal. Trees and forests are really our best defense against climate change right now. Forests um, currently sequester a large proportion of the greenhouse gases that we emit with fossil fuel burning now. So cutting those forests and burning them and liquidating that carbon into the atmosphere makes no sense at all from a climate change perspective. The key to whether biomass can be truly renewable is whether the wood burned in power plants would go to waste anyway. If a logging or pulpwood company burns its waste wood as trash or lets it decompose, it's already emitting carbon dioxide. So no harm done from using the material for electricity. No additional emissions to the atmosphere. But there are no federal regulations that require biomass come from waste wood. And even if there were... The definition of what is considered to be waste wood is really in the eye of the beholder. And we're seeing a lot of things defined as waste wood that might not otherwise be considered to be that. Biomass started as a money saver for the paper and pulp industry in the 1980s. Instead of throwing away woody waste, companies started burning it to save on their electricity bills. But today, biomass has become crucial to efforts to cut greenhouse gas emissions. More than 20 states mandate utilities supply more renewable electricity. There are state and federal tax credits for renewable energy production. And regional cap-and-trade programs on both coasts discourage CO2 emissions. It's widely believed that without biomass, we won't get near our goals. Bob Cleves is the head of the industry lobbying group, the Biomass Power Association. Take the Commonwealth of Massachusetts as an example. Right now, biomass accounts for 40 percent of that state's renewable energy supply. And so if biomass were to go away, that would make it nearly impossible not only to meet future targets, but you'd see it would set back the effort to green, if you will, the country's energy supply significantly. But Mary Booth, who led a study on biomass emissions for the Environmental Working Group, says renewable energy goals mean nothing if emissions aren't actually reduced. Indeed, it is discouraging to think that some large fraction of the renewable energy that we've been promised we can deploy isn't going to help with our need to reduce carbon emissions. But the best tonic for this is just to deal with the reality and go back to the drawing board and redouble our efforts in other arenas. 
because the last thing we would want to do is incentivize something as renewable energy that actually makes climate change worse. Half of the country's renewable electricity now comes from biomass. There are more than 100 plants generating power from biomass in about 20 states, and consumption is expected to double by 2020. That biomass is given the same incentives as solar and wind frustrates some environmentalists who fear the growing demand for it won't just help heat up the planet. It could also wipe out the country's forests. But Bob Cleves says that argument doesn't make any economic sense. If you were to clear-cut forests causing deforestation, I don't think anyone thinks that that's sustainable. And it's really difficult to say that that's, quote, carbon neutral. But fortunately, no one does that. It's not economically rational to take a tree chip it and burn it in a boiler, because you would never do that from an economic standpoint. And we don't think that the the economics are going to change substantially. Even in a carbon-constrained future? I mean, certainly in theory, if the country placed a price on carbon dramatically different than what people are modeling right now, or if carbon were valued at $100 a ton, for example, then could that in theory happen? Sure. Do we think that it will happen? No. Nor do we encourage it as as an industry. The EPA says it needs until 2014 to study the science of emissions linked to biomass before deciding how to regulate them. In the meantime, it can issue permits for biomass plants that will be exempt from greenhouse gas regulations in the future. The agency's decision has pleased the Biomass Power Association and the more than two dozen members of Congress who petitioned the EPA in support of the industry. Many are swing votes for the kind of clean energy legislation the Obama administration hopes to pass in this Congress, which could in turn give another big boost to biomass. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj. Just as defining what's renewable energy is debatable, so is the question, what's clean energy? It's a distinction with a big difference. In his recent State of the Union address, President Obama didn't mention renewable power once, but referred to clean energy no less than five times. He wants clean energy to generate 80% of the nation's needs by 2035. The Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources will soon hold hearings on the president's ambitious goal, and its powerful chairman, Democrat Jeff Bingaman of New Mexico, thinks that's doable. It is possible. There is a lot of uh, action going on right now where conventional coal-fired power plants are being scheduled for shutdown. And uh, some of that is happening just because of the economics. Uh, The price of natural gas is so low. We don't have a clear path to get from where we are today to where the president wants us to be. But uh, I think it is conceivable we could get there. But he did mention 80% of our energy by 2035 from clean energy. That's correct. Uh, But he defines clean energy a little bit differently than it seems that you do. You had your renewable electricity standard, and you don't include... Uh, some of the things the president does. He includes nuclear power and and what he calls clean coal. What we proposed in the last Congress and uh, were able to vote out of our energy committee was not a clean energy standard. It was a renewable energy standard. And it uh, said that a certain percentage of the power that was sold by utilities had to come from renewable sources. And uh, that did not include Uh, nuclear. It did not include coal, even uh, so-called clean coal. It did not include natural gas. Uh, The president mentioned all three of those in his State of the Union speech. But uh, I'm not proposing anything at this point. What I am uh, hoping we can do is to hear from some experts uh, to look at uh, both uh, how a 
renewable electricity standard operates and then uh, how that same type of system might work in the case of a broader defined clean energy standard like the president uh, referred to. The president in his State of the Union speech did not mention climate change or greenhouse gases. Were you disappointed? Well, I think the president was trying to talk about uh, issues that he would like the Congress to try to move forward and take action on and send him legislation on. It's pretty clear we don't have the votes in this Congress to pass legislation directly limiting greenhouse gases. We didn't have the votes to do that in the last Congress, at least in the Senate. And uh, with the change in membership of the new Congress, I I think it's pretty clear we don't have the votes in this Congress. The president wants to support clean energy uh, to be paid for, in part by removing subsidies for big oil. But that would be a a real drop in the bucket. It's like $4 billion. That, That wouldn't even be a down payment on some of the projects that I think you're suggesting. Uh, You know, the the truth is, I think that in the first two budgets that he sent to Congress since he's been president, he also suggested that the various subsidies for the oil and gas industry be removed or eliminated. Congress did not uh, take him up on that suggestion. I'm doubtful that uh, this uh, current Congress will either. So, So there'll be a struggle to figure out how do you get the necessary revenue to do what the president's talking about. Just a few years ago, the United States was a net exporter of green energy technologies at about $8 billion in the green, I guess you could put it. And now we're about $14 billion a year in the red in terms of importing green technologies. What can the U.S. do to improve that? Well, we need to do a whole range of things, and um, we clearly need to adopt policies that uh, create more of a demand for clean energy products in this country. By doing so, we, we also attract the manufacturing for those products, and then we're in a position to export. So that's one thing. Uh, we, we need to provide more financial assistance to clean energy developers, uh, people who are putting in uh, wind farms and photovoltaic uh, arrays around the country so that we can uh, do better there as well. Other, other countries have just uh, made this a very high priority. China in particular has invested an enormous amount, is investing each year an enormous amount in, in trying to capture this, uh, this whole sector of industry, this clean energy sector. Well, Senator, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Democrat Jeff Bingaman is chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Right after our conversation, he met with President Obama in the White House to discuss energy issues. Clean or renewable? We don't know. Neither the White House nor Senator Bingaman talked to reporters after their meeting. Just ahead, hearing tests for dolphins. But first, this note on emerging science from Megan Miner. A state-of-the-art theater with surround sound gives the illusion that audio is just behind you, or to the right, or left. In the grand theater of the ocean, sharks experience surround smell. Scientists originally thought sharks used the intensity of smells to locate food. But, because smells don't disperse evenly in water, marine biologists in Florida and Massachusetts wondered if this really was how sharks find their prey. The researchers set up an experiment where sharks wore headgear that released scents of different concentrations, one nostril at a time. 
they found that even when an extremely diluted smell was sent to one nostril before a full-strength odor was sent to the other, the shark turned in the direction of the nostril that sniffed the smell first. This showed that sharks use each of their nostrils independently to pinpoint their food. The finding may help explain why hammerhead sharks are considered the fastest and often the first sharks to reach prey. Hammerheads have nostrils on either side of their head, increasing the lag time between scents reaching each nostril, making them faster at honing in on dinner. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Megan Miner. Like a lot of small towns, the village of Gresham, Wisconsin has a big and growing problem, an ever-tightening budget and an ever-increasing amount of wastewater. So Gresham, population 600, is trying an experiment for its sewage, a poo glue. That's glue as in igloo, and poo as in, well, you know. Art Barr, the administrator of Gresham, says the makers of the poo glue want to see if the igloo-shaped device can handle wastewater during a Wisconsin winter. Right now, it goes into a lagoon where there's uh, bacteria or bugs, if you want to call them, that uh, eat at the waste, and they take and turn that into oxygen and get rid of all the sludge and heavier materials. But in the cold, that doesn't work so well. No, in the cold, the bugs slow down, and they don't like to do their job quite as well. And that's where these poo glues come in. Yes, they're poo glues, and actually, they're starting to rename them right now. They're calling them biodomes. So they wanted to go with a little, a little better terminology for them. Cleaning up their act. Yes, cleaning up their act in more ways than one. So how actually does a poo glue work? If you can picture in your mind what a Russian doll looks like, how you can pull the little parts away and you have another doll inside. Yeah, the Matryoshka nesting dolls. Yes, if you just look at that, the top half, there's seven little nests inside of those domes. There's seven more smaller domes within it. And in between each of the domes, there's plastic material that the bacteria live on, and it's a fixed-film technology. The bacteria live on it, and what we do is we just supply air to them, and the air circulates the water throughout it so the bacteria can eat away at the solids that are in it. So since you have this nesting system, basically what you're doing is increasing the area, the surface areas for the bacteria to grow. You've got more bacteria. Yes, that's basically what we're doing. We're creating a really nice home and a larger home for the bacteria to live. And they work even in the cold? Yes, yes. They seem to work fantastic in the cold. And, and how much do the Pooglues cost, these biodomes? They're about $5,000 a piece. Ooh, that's pretty stiff. It's stiff, but they're a long-term item. As long as you treat the bacteria good and give them the environment to live in, they should last for, for many years. How many of these glues did you have to buy? Well, right now what we're doing is we're doing a pilot. So we just have one unit, and everything seems to be working fantastic with this one. Now what will happen is once we get our data back, it appears that between our two ponds, we'll have to put in 34 of these poo glues. We'll put in 17 in each pond. So at $5,000 a pop, a poo glue farm of 34, what is that? We're talking about $170,000? Yes. Now, when you talk about the money of it, we had looked at, upgrading our ponds to meet the Wisconsin DNR's statutory requirements for discharge. And if we do it using older technologies, we'd actually have to put a cover over our pond to keep the pond water warmer. And doing that would cost us approximately $325,000. Ooh, that's a pretty stiff bill. Yes, for a small utility, we have 275 customers. So, so we try to do anything economically that we can. We're the first one in the Midwest to do this. 
And so the DNR is watching us closely. And, and the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources there in Wisconsin. Yes, they're appreciating all the data they're getting. And uh, it's pretty neat that such a small town as ours can be involved in a project that uh, could set a real trend for a lot of Midwestern cold weather lagoon systems. And it's not every day you get to say Pooglu with a straight face. <laughs> yes, and yes, it, uh, it's quite something every time you put it in your computer. It wants to spell check it to G-L-U-E. But it's spelled G-L-O-O, Pooglu or Biodome, as the maker's wastewater compliance systems prefer. You can see photos of the novel device and Art Barr, the administrator of the village of Gresham, Wisconsin, at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, a novel design to turn a waste incinerator into a tourist hotspot. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Usually sound is part of the background of our stories, but in today's Bird Note, we bring it front and center. Lend an ear as Mary McCann offers a sonic bird's eye view of a day in the life of an avian photographer. We're hearing a yellow-billed loon calling on Alaska's north slope. What does it take to make a recording like this? Here's Garrett Vinn, who captured these sounds while on assignment for the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Trying to record loons has been a really frustrating thing for us to do. The first year when we went up there, I actually spent 12 hours under a piece of camouflage cloth waiting for yellow-billed loons to call, and I had a pair that were swimming right around the microphone and we didn't get a peep out of them. Now, imagine carrying very specialized battery-operated equipment, along with all your camping gear, across the tundra. Basically, every step you take, you're sinking anywhere from your ankle to above your knee in wet, spongy terrain, which can be pretty exhausting, and a lot of times there's nowhere dry to to put your things down and take a rest. But the payoff is there, if you're lucky. Uh, These are a pair of yellow balloons. They're giving pretty much going through their whole repertoire of vocalizations, yodels, wails, and moans. If there's an invading loon on their lake, they'll especially get vocal. Uh, This recording, there was another loon that had landed on their lake, and they were trying to drive it off of their lake. Wildlife photographer Garrett Vinn with Bird Notes' Mary McCann. To see some of Garrett's photos of loons, fly over to our website, LOE.org. You know what to do when life hands you lemons, but what if it gives you a power plant that burns garbage? Well, if you're architect Bjarke Ingels of Copenhagen, you turned it into a ski slope. 
His company, the Bjarke Ingels Group, just won first prize in an international competition that challenged architects to design a new incinerator to turn waste into energy in the Danish capital. Bjarke Ingels joins me on the line from Copenhagen. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks a lot. So as I understand it, I've seen your drawings, and essentially you're wrapping a ski slope around a, a smokestack of this new power plant. Uh, exactly, like the, um, this building that transforms all the the trash of the Copenhageners into their electricity and uh, heating is going to be not only the tallest, but also the biggest building in Copenhagen. We thought that since Copenhagen actually has the climate, but not the topography for skiing, we could actually provide the Copenhageners with a man-made mountain that transforms sort of the flat but cold and snowy Copenhagen into a real sort of man-made uh, alpine skiing resort. How many ski trails will you have on this uh, smokestack mountain? They're going to be able to choose between a green, uh, a blue, and a black slope. Uh, it's even going to sort of contain a, a mogul slope for the experts and also a slope for the kids. But a power plant as a, a ski slope? I mean, sounds kind of environmentally contradictory. The interesting thing about this power plant is like you can say one of the sort of main drivers of creating a sustainable city is to be able to integrate both the sort of economical and ecological infrastructure of the city into the city fabric itself. So you somehow need to find a way of actually integrating these uh, really big industrial facilities in the middle of the city. So um, the challenge of the competition was to try to make a big factory uh, beautiful. And we thought instead of just wrapping it in a sort of beautiful wrapping, we would really turn the entire plant itself into a gift for the citizens of, uh, of Copenhagen. So people are going to take a lift or a gondola up to the, to the plant and then ski down? Essentially, they're going to take traditional vertical elevator because like, unlike um, normal mountains where you're forced to take you know, a ski lift, here you can actually take a vertical elevator all the way from the ground to the roof. And then the, the slope, uh, since in this case it's a, it's a man-made mountain, we can engineer it so all the slopes end up straight at the foot of the, of the elevator. But also, as the power plant is going to be uh, interested in displaying its deployment of the, the latest environmental technologies in the transformation of, of waste into heat and, and energy, they'll also be able to take like a promenade and actually sort of explore the various uh, operations of the factory looming inside the mountain. I was reading about the award, and I, and I see that this stack is going to uh, kind of puff out smoke rings. We thought that it could be interesting to transform the smokestack itself into a sort of a playful element. Just like the factory becomes a, a ski slope, the way we designed the chimney is that the, the mouth of the chimney is uh, shaped in the form of a giant uh, disc. The, the hollow space inside the thickness of this uh, disc gradually fills up with smoke. And when it contains 200 kilos of uh, CO2, this uh, chamber compresses and it blows a giant smoke ring. One of the main ideas is, is, of course, to turn the symbol of the factory, the chimney, which is also the symbol of pollution, into something playful. But I think more importantly, one of the main drivers of behavioral change is knowledge. If people don't know, they can't act. In the future, like in 2016, when this uh, plant has been, uh, been realized, I'll be able to tell my kids that once they've counted five smoke rings, we will have emitted one ton of CO2. This sort of abstract element of a tail of smoke that's like ungraspable and uncountable suddenly becomes very basic, just like, you know, counting the seconds after you see the lightning flash. 
in the future, just counting the smoke rings, you'll be able to tell how much of CO2 we've emitted. Do you remember sitting around a, a table with your design team and uh, saying, you know, I got a great idea. <laughs> what did they say to you when you came up with this idea? I mean, we gradually realized when we started like probing and, and digging into all the criticism and all the sort of complications that, that this was like almost like the only sensible thing to do with something as big as a giant power plant. Uh, and it was only when we sort of came up with the sort of notion of not only sort of creating a, a building that has like an economical and an ecological purpose that, you know, it recycles waste into energy, but to give it a social purpose that actually uh, this giant volume becomes a part of the topography of Copenhagen and actually contributes to the citizens of Copenhagen and turns it into a destination. Because if sustainability is always perceived as the question of like how much of our existing quality of life are we prepared to sacrifice in order to afford being sustainable. Essentially, uh, the sort of moral burden that we have to bear, the sort of general understanding that it has to hurt to do good. We're trying to look at a sort of different approach where a sustainable city and sustainable buildings actually increase the quality of life. We call this uh, hedonistic sustainability. Well, Mr. Engels, thanks, and good luck with your um, waste-to-energy ski slope in Copenhagen. Thanks a lot. And you're, you're very much invited to come and test it out with a pair of skis on your feet in 2016. <laughs> I'll be there. That's Danish architect Bjarke Engels, whose award-winning incinerator will produce electric power and skiing pleasure. For us, this is the sound of the sea. But creatures that live under the waves have a totally different soundscape, one that human activities have made increasingly noisy, a cacophony that could be disturbing sea life that depends on sound to survive. Living on Earth's Ike Shriskandaraja prepared our report. À la découverte d'un monde étrange, presque inconnu. Jacques Cousteau called the ocean the silent world. And he gave that name to his 1956 underwater documentary, Le Monde du Silence. But while it's mostly silent to us, to its regular residents, the ocean can sound like a busy street corner. And research from two ocean scientists shows us the significance of sound in the sea. The first study comes from David Mann, an associate professor of biological oceanography at the University of South Florida. He recorded these bottlenose dolphins around Tampa Bay. Yeah, it's an underwater recording, middle of the night. Everything you hear in there is completely natural sound. There's a dolphin whistling at high frequencies. And then there are fish sounds, which people, most people don't know about, that are lower frequencies. So it sounds like, you know, the fish sounds are like, bop, 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 bop. And so it's interesting for people, I think, for a number of points. One is that, you know, there's a lot of animals in the ocean using sound for communication. Man says every dolphin has its own signature whistle. That's how a baby dolphin identifies its mom through all the other calls around it. Just like if we met, and I'd say, hi, I'm Ike. For example, in Bono's dolphins, this whistle is basically, you know, saying like, Bob, 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 or whatever, you know, my name. But whistles aren't just to identify which dolphin is Bob. They also tell them where they are and what's around. Being able to hear is vital. For dolphins, deafness is disorienting. In the dolphin's world, if you even have a 40-decibel hearing loss, your range of echolocation is going to drop by a hundredfold. And 
and that's basically making the animal blind. For five years, David Mann would rush to the beach whenever he heard of a stranded dolphin, and he'd give the dolphin a hearing test. It's yeah, this is completely non-invasive. It's the same exact test that they use with human infants to test for deafness, and so the one difference is you know we don't have. Uh, headphones per se for dolphins. We use what we call a jawphone, which is simply a small speaker in a suction cup. So the dolphin would have a speaker on its jaw and a suction cup on the top of its head to monitor brain waves. The brain waves show up as a line on a little portable screen. You know, they'll play a sound to you like boop, boop, boop. In a healthy dolphin, the brain waves go wild at that tone. But a lot of the time, David was staring at flat lines. You know, the first time we thought our equipment wasn't working because it's basically you're not getting any electrical response off the brain when you play sound to it. But then we started seeing this more, you know, more than one time, and we also had animals at the same location that had normal hearing. So over the five years, Man and his team conducted these tests. They found that more than half of the bottlenose dolphins that beached themselves had significant hearing loss. But he thinks. That just might be part of being a dolphin. Deafness in humans is not uncommon, and、um, there's no reason to suspect that dolphins are going to be any different than humans. But there's another possibility: human-made sounds might be hurting their hearing in ways we don't understand. If you start running, you know, hundreds or thousands of ships on the same shipping channel back and forth all the time, and you raise the background noise like 30 or 40 decibels on average. Continuously, now you're affecting lots and lots of animals, and it's happening out in the middle of the ocean. So it's a lot actually harder to figure out what the effects are. David Mann isn't the only scientist wrestling with that question. So is Susan Parks. So that's the it's the joy of science. Parks is an assistant professor of acoustics at Penn State. She studies how ocean noise might affect one of the ocean's largest and rarest inhabitants, the right whale. Right. Yeah, so right whales are highly endangered, and there are about 400 left in the North Atlantic right now. They're so rare now because they were the right whales to hunt, and man is still the danger. These whales are living in an area that's highly influenced by human activities, similar to animals that might live in a city. Most things that people do in the ocean,、uh, either intentionally or inadvertently, produce sound as a byproduct. <laughs> The one that we think about a lot with the species I study are the sounds generated from commercial shipping. It's only been about a hundred years that these ships have been in the ocean, and then if you look at the number of ships, the number of ships has been steadily increasing, particularly over the past forty or fifty years. Parks wanted to know how that had affected right whales. One of the simplest ways to test this was to use recordings from the 1950s, when there were fewer ships in the ocean, to ones made in sort of modern time, when there was a higher level of background noise. Go to the tape. The first was recorded in 1956, the same year Jacques Cousteau called the ocean the Silent World. The tape, made by William Cheville of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, is a little scratchy. Fifty years later, Parks made another recording of right whales at the Bay of Fundy, where Maine meets Canada. The main difference between the two recordings, and, and if you listen to it, you can hear that the the sounds produced by right whales in the 1950s. There's actually been a shift upwards、um, of about 30 hertz for this species. What's that like?、Uh, an octave?、Uh, it's a little less than an octave. Yeah. So 
today are right whales more falsetto? <laughs> well, it's still it's all still pretty low frequency. So they sing higher to cut through the ship noise, and they also sing louder. As we ratchet up our volume, so do the whales. But perhaps there's a limit. It's possible that when the noise level exceeds a certain threshold, they just stop calling. And Park says that could make the lonesome leviathans even more solitary. Individual right whales don't make a lot of calls. They're relatively sort of the strong, silent type. In an endangered population, this is particularly of concern because there are fewer individuals out there. And so they're in the same ocean, and they need to find each other to mate and to um, relocate their offspring. But how these elusive whales will actually cope with an increasingly noisy world is still an open question. So you've sort of gotten to the heart of why I actually, why I study whale communication. Um, we don't know. But we do know that the ocean never was Cousteau's silent world. Life in the ocean has always been noisy. But now there are four billion more people than there were in 1956. With all the decibels human trade and industry generate in the ocean, navigating through the din is the 21st century challenge for sea life. For Living on Earth, I'm Ike Sreeskandaraja. We leave you this week in northern Greece, in the village of Dorcas, not far from the Bulgarian border. At dusk, a shepherd brings in his flock from the fields for the night. But listen carefully. As the sheep got closer, recorder Stevenfeld heard some static and a news broadcast. Only then did he notice a transistor radio poking out of the shepherd's pocket. These and other sounds can be heard on his CD, Bells and Winter Festivals of Greek Macedonia. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Sean Falk and Wynn Tucker. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the LOE Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.